Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show. My name is Jeff Bernier. I am the president and a wealth advisor at Tan and Growth Financial Advisors, a wealth management firm in the greater Atlanta area, where our mission is to help our clients create clarity and confidence to live a great life as they uniquely define a great life. This show is my attempt to try to put together deeper conversations around what brings meaning and purpose to your life with high quality wealth management with a goal of helping you create clarity and confidence and again to create the capacity, the freedom to go pursue those things that you find most meaningful. So through high quality wealth management, you can create the capacity, as I mentioned, the freedom to go pursue those things that you find most significant in your life. And so that's what the show's about, trying to put together money and meaning. Two quotes. Process saves us from the poverty of our intentions. Process saves us from the poverty of our intentions. Elizabeth King. Second quote. The most important thing is to have an investment philosophy. The most important thing about having an investment philosophy is to have one you could stick with. The most important thing about having an investment philosophy is having one that you can stick with. David Booth. So I want to talk today a little bit about process and investment philosophy. And we talk a lot on this show about process, and I write a lot about the importance of a process of a well-defined research-based process. You know, we've, we've written as, as well and, and had shows about the importance of having a consistent, well-thought-out process, and that's even more critical in uncertain times. And boy, would many people argue that these are certainly uncertain times. There's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot going on in the capital markets. There's a lot going on with geopolitics and politics and um, tax policy, and there's just a lot of uncertainty. Some would argue that we've got historical uncertainty. I sort of debate that. I think all times are filled with uncertainty. They're just things that you and I can't know. We live in an uncertain world. And I believe that through studying history and being a student of history, it can help a little bit with perspective, understanding that we live in an uncertain world, but what's important about when you live in an uncertain world is that you have a process that can help you move towards your goals. And then today, we're going to talk about investment process or investment philosophy. And again, studying history can help you with that. Uh, you know, Harry Truman said famously that uh, the only thing new in the world is the history that you do not know. So again, I encourage you to be a student of history, to understand how um, we have, have things have, tra have transpired. So we live in this uncertain time. We have to have a framework around how to deal with it as we build an investment strategy that can help you fulfill your uh, vision of success, as we mentioned before. We also live in a time where there's a lot of data. There's tons of data. 
uh, we can get all the information we want. And there's a continuum, I think, that runs from data to information. And ultimately, you wanna take the information and turn it into useful knowledge. And even a more rare commodity is wisdom. So this continuum runs from data, information, knowledge, to wisdom. How do you take all of this information and synthesize it into wisdom that is useful and usable? And that's really important. And that's what an investment philosophy can help you do. What you really wanna do is learn to focus on the fewer, more important things so you can tune out the noise. And again, that's part of what an investment philosophy can help you do. It's like a mental shortcut. Now, our brains ha use mental shortcuts all the time. They're not always helpful uh, because it's a way to keep our brain from burning calories. So we make assumptions or we make behavioral mistakes because we use mental shortcuts. Today, the mental shortcut I'm talking about is having a well thought out process or philosophy that can be your framework that can be a shortcut. So that again, you can eliminate the noise uh, and you can have a philosophy that works over time regardless of the present environment. So what I wanna to talk today about is this framework around an investment philosophy that may serve you. And you know, everybody has a philosophy. Everybody has an investment philosophy. It's not always well articulated, but we all have one. And oftentimes, if, if it's not based on evidence or research, it could be uh, a philosophy that doesn't work for you, but we all have a philosophy. And it's one of the most critical things that you should evaluate as you're evaluating investment partners or investment managers or a coach or an advisor to help you construct your investment plan. Uh, it's important to know the philosophy up front. Does it make sense to you? Do you feel comfortable with it? Do you understand it? And I tell clients and certainly prospective clients all the time, we have an investment philosophy that we're unlikely to change unless evidence drives us to a different philosophy. The research might drive us to a different philosophy, but it's really important for us to communicate that philosophy to you and to our prospective clients so that if they don't feel comfortable with it, they should not engage us. Because again, this is the idea here is you need to know and understand that philosophy up front, so we wanna make that clear. When I talk about a philosophy today, however, this is basically ours, but I think you could adopt it for your own purposes. Um, there's nothing uh, pr uh, proprietary about what I'm gonna to share today. There's nothing particularly unique about it, but the evidence indicates that this is a sound philosophy that can work, and that does work, uh, that we've employed for years. And there's three primary principles the first one is faith, faith in the future, faith in the capital markets, faith, uh, you know, and I, I use the term frequently called we're rational optimist. As I mentioned about studying history, if you study history, things do tend to get better over time. It doesn't always feel like it. I know we've done shows about, about that, about how the world is actually getting better in many, many categories. Uh, but because bad news sells, we don't, we don't frequently know about it. But the first thing I would say is our philosophy is driven on faith in the capital markets and faith in the future. Uh, I have an exercise I would encourage you to consider. If you will just go onto the computer and search online data Robert Schiller, 
Robert Schiller is a professor at Yale University, written several really important books. Probably his most famous was a book called Irrational Exuberance. And right on his website at, again, you can just search online data, Robert Schiller, uh, you can find some of his data that backs up some of his findings. Uh, he's also well known for creating something called the cyclical, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, the CAPE ratio, you'll hear that used a lot. But at any rate, if you'll go to Robert Schiller's website uh, at this online, again, search online data, Robert Schiller, you'll find an Excel spreadsheet. And he has put in the price, the dividends, earnings, uh, the price earnings ratio and the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio going back on the U.S. equity market all the way back to 1871. And in the most recent 100 years or so, it's the S&P 500, the S&P 500 index, if you will. And on the left column, you can go to the month and the year that you were born and see what the S&P 500 was at the month and the year that you were born. I was born in 1963. In the month that I was born, the S&P 500 was at 66. I checked before our show today, uh, at the time of this recording, the S&P 500 is about 4,500. And so it's grown from 66 to 4,500 in my lifetime. And that doesn't include dividends. So I think if you study history, you will see that over time, being a shareholder in the world's great businesses has been profitable. Uh, and so you've had this long period of time of, of uh, growth in being a shareholder in the world's great businesses. And we've been through many, many challenges in this 58-year period. Heck, in the year that I was born, President Kennedy was assassinated, 1963. Uh, about 10 years later, we had uh, 72, 73, a significant bear market, and we had the Watergate scandal resulting in the resignation of President Nixon in 1974. Uh, you may remember uh, 1987, we had Black Monday. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 22% in one day. Uh, in the early 90s, we had Gulf War I, uh, which was obviously uh, a scary and challenging time. Uh, 2011, we had, I'm sorry, 2001, we had the 9-11. We had the terrorist attacks uh, and the World Trade Center. And uh, right before that, we had the tech bubble that burst. Uh, we had the Great Recession uh, that began late 06, early 07, uh, and the equity market, the U.S. stock market, fell 57% from peak to trough in, in 2007 through early 2009. And then, of course, just last year, we had a 35% decline from February to March in the equity markets uh, during what I guess was the scariest time of the COVID pandemic with the shutdown of the economy. So the point of all this is, in my lifetime, where we've had these various challenges, the S&P 500 has gone from 66 to 4,500, not even including the dividend income that you would also receive on those equities. So I think faith in the future is, is, is well-founded. Um, the capital markets have a way of correcting themselves over time. And I believe it's because it's organic. I write and talk about this a lot, so I know this might be a bit redundant with themes that I've shared before on this podcast. But I believe this growth is organic because people want to live better tomorrow than they live today. 
They want their children to live better tomorrow than they live today. It's the human condition. We want to improve our lot in life, if you will. We get educated, we go to college, we start businesses, we start new jobs, um, we, get, uh, new, we develop new skills. As we start earning income, we purchase things to improve our quality of life, to have more fun, to have more enjoyment, to have more freedom. Um, and so we participate in this global economy uh, as consumers and as producers. And that leads to economic growth because you're buying goods and services from businesses every day who's there to meet those needs. And we're working for those businesses every day. So we're trying to improve our lot in life. We're consuming from these great businesses all over the world, which adds to their corporate earnings. And over time, the value of businesses follow corporate earnings. So this growth over my lifetime and yours is not uh, some dirt, dark secret. It's, it's not complicated. It's basically our participating in the global market. So number one, the most important principle is faith in the markets, faith in the future. Number two is patience. And this is uh, a most uh, un-American, I guess, quality. It certainly is for me. We're not patient people by nature. By nature, we want instant gratification. We want instant results. Um, it's not hard to see evidence of that if you just watch the news every day. Um, I mean, I'm the guy that sits at the microwave, and if it takes five minutes to cook a, a microwave dinner, I'm frustrated and I'm looking at my watch uh, when I'm used to it only taking three minutes. So it, the human condition is we're not very patient people. But in our investment philosophy, principle number two is you've got to have patience to let the strategies work. And number three is discipline having a rules-based, uh, evidence-based, rules-based approach that you can stick with. Back to the David Booth quote earlier, the most important thing about an investment philosophy is that you can stick with it. So we need discipline. Uh, and again, partnering with an advisor might be helpful in that regard. So the three primary principles are faith, patience, and a disciplined approach. And we essentially have, and I would encourage you to consider in your own planning, six pillars of our investment philosophy. And you can think of this like a Greek temple with six columns. All six of these hold up the philosophy. They're all important. But the way I'm gonna illustrate them in this podcast, one might argue they're in the level of where the most value is driven. So in other words, the first one is probably more important than two and three, and two and three is probably more important than four, five, and six in terms of adding towards real positive outcomes. They're all important, but they're designed to be sort of a hierarchy around those that are most important uh, will be the first ones that I discuss uh, in a systematic fashion. And the first one, and what I would argue is probably the most important one, is it should be goal-focused and planning-driven. Goal-focused and planning-driven. What I mean by that is the investment strategies that you should choose should be driven by your financial goals. Uh, and that's also counter-cultural. We live in a world where the media and the financial services industry can be very performance-driven and outcome-focused. 
where we want to be goal-focused and planning-driven, it's oftentimes, again, performance-driven and market-focused. And the reason I say goal-focused and planning-driven is, again, your need will define the investment policy. And investment policy is just a fancy word for how you allocate your money between growth assets, where you have ownership in businesses and real estate, equities, and safer, less volatile assets, bonds, cash, bank accounts. So that decision is driven by your goals, the rate of return that you need to fund your goals. So that's number one. The plan should drive the investment policy, this, this decision between debt and equity. Uh, um, and again, let that drive the policy, not some unreliable forecast. Number two, it's a recognition that over a lifetime of investing, investor behavior has more impact on the long-term success or failure of an investment strategy, usually than the investments themselves. In other words, how you behave or how your advisor behaves or how your investment manager behaves will have more impact on the long-term success or failure than actually the investments you put in the portfolio. And so the idea here is you want to invest rationally and not emotionally. And so again, I could show you a pattern of behavior where you own outstanding investments. Um, a rating agency might say these are all high quality, highly rated investments. And I could show you a pattern of behavior where you would be penniless after a 20 year period of investing in these high quality investments because of a pattern of behavior. So number two, is a rational process, not an emotional process. I call this behavioral investment counseling. And one of the important tenets of that is your portfolio is not only driven by your financial planning goals, but it's also driven by your willingness to accept uncertainty and your capacity or your ability to accept uncertainty. So number one was goal-focused and planning-driven. Number two was making sure that you have a portfolio or a strategy you can stick with in good times and bad and manage your emotions. Number three is diversification. You're, that's not a surprise to anybody probably listening to this podcast. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You know that. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There's cost and trade-offs in everything in life. In investment policy or investment theory or investment management, the closest thing we have to a free lunch is diversification. With a broadly diversified portfolio, you can accomplish uh, significant rates of return with much, more, with much lower volatility. So you can get higher returns with lower volatility by having a diversified approach. And so the idea here is that you have a mix of asset classes categories of investments that don't all move in the same direction at the same time under most economic scenarios. So a broadly diversified portfolio, and really a simple way to think about that, is you won't own enough of any one thing to make a killing, but you also won't own enough of any one thing to get killed. And, the, and again, the reason that's important is we trust the capital markets. As a matter of fact, most risk assets have similar expected returns. 
they just occur at different periods of time under different economic scenarios. So the goal is to have a broadly diversified, what I call multiple asset class diversified portfolio. Number four, be thoughtful about how you allocate these asset classes between tax sheltered and taxable accounts. Be thoughtful about how you allocate these asset classes between taxable and taxable accounts. Some asset classes generate high levels of ordinary income. Some asset classes don't generate a lot of ordinary income. Most of the return comes in the form of a more tax-favored capital gain. Therefore, as you build the portfolio, you would want to allocate those asset classes that are the most tax efficient to your non-IRA accounts and those asset classes that are the least tax efficient to your tax-sheltered accounts like IRAs or 401ks or potentially if you have variable annuity products that are, that are tax-deferred. So item number four was uh, in building this diversified portfolio, try to stuff the tax-sheltered accounts with those asset classes that you should own but are tax inefficient. Own those inside of your tax-sheltered accounts. Own the more tax-efficient asset classes in the taxable accounts. Number five, periodically rebalance the portfolio. Now, rebalancing is really not a tool to enhance returns. That could be a happy byproduct, but it's really there to manage risk, to make sure that your portfolio stays in a strategy that again, has the expected return that we need to fund your goal, back to item number one. In other words, own those asset classes that have a high probability of funding your goal. So periodically, you need to rebalance to make sure you stay within that mix that, it, that drives your goal, that's driven by your goals. Uh, and then secondly, it forces you to take some risk off the table, to take those asset classes that have done well recently you would be trimming some of those and purchasing some of those asset classes that have underperformed on a relative basis recently. And that's very difficult to do psychologically. It's very difficult to sell something that's gone up and buy something that's gone down. But because we're trying to, number one, make sure we stay within the prescribed risk profile and, and, the, and the need for capital, we're also trimming those things that have gone up a lot and reinvesting in those things that may have higher expected returns because they've gone down in value. So it's a, it's a way to manage risk, and it could be a way to enhance returns. Now, something about rebalancing, there's a lot of research on the optimum rebalancing strategy, and there's a lot of debate and a lot of academic research on the best ways to rebalance. And uh, the most important thing that I would say is that you make it relatively systematic. You really want to take the judgment out of it. Uh, so if you work with an advisor like us, I mean, we have sophisticated software that we do what we call tolerance rebalancing because we're trying to trade as little as possible. So we want to rebalance as necessary, but we don't want to trade too much, uh, but we want to trade when it's justified. Um, and there's two things that go on in these asset classes. There is regression to the mean, which means those asset classes that have done well over a long period of time at some point will underperform. And so in order to regress back to the average, they'll have a period of time where they will underperform. And so what rebalancing helps you do is take some chips off the table when they're still doing well. Um, and so regression to the mean means that you're buying those things that have done 
less uh, well recently, which has higher expected returns. The second thing that happens in the capital markets is there is short-term momentum. And so you don't want to rebalance too much because you not only do you want to uh, not have too much trading cost or potential tax cost, but you also want to take care of po uh, take advantage of positive momentum. So you don't want to rebalance too too frequently, but you do definitely want to rebalance. And again, my advice would be make it systematic where the judgment has been removed. And then finally, number six is what are the products, what are the vehicles that we put into the plan? And so we're, we're, we're fi we're, our final step is number six. What are the vehicles that we fit in to this asset allocation plan that we're developing? Uh, our industry normally starts with number six, but we want to start, we, we finish with number six because all these other steps are more critical in our view. But then once we move to number six, finding the vehicles, um, we have some biases. We want liquid, we want low cost, and we want, evidence-based, meaning there's research behind using that particular vehicle. So the product selection to fit into the plan can be critical. So again, we prefer liquid, which basically means we could be out of it at any time. You're not locked in to an investment vehicle. Uh, we want it to be low cost because again, markets are uncertain, but costs are known. Uh, we want it to be transparent where we can see what's going on inside the product. And as I mentioned, we want it to be research-based or evidence-based. And there's a lot of academic research on factors that can enhance potential returns, these expected returns. So just summarizing these six pillars, if you will, number one, goal-focused and planning-driven. In other words, let your goals, let your financial plan dictate this investment policy. In other words, how much in equity-based investments and how much in fixed income investments that you use to play defense. Number two, invest rationally, not emotionally. And so again, build a strategy that you can live with, that you can stick with. Number three, broad asset class diversification, where you have a mix of assets that have positive expected returns, but don't all move in the same direction at the same time under most economic scenarios. Number four, be thoughtful about how you allocate these asset classes between sheltered accounts and taxable accounts, taking advantage of putting the least tax efficient asset classes in the sheltered accounts. Number five, periodically rebalance your portfolio to manage risk and again, maybe enhance potential returns, but again, the most important is to manage risk and to stay within a profile that has a reasonable probability of funding the plan. And then finally, using vehicles that are low cost, transparent, liquid, and based on an evidence-based, research-based approach. And so, understand that the goal here is to have a philosophy, a framework that you can live with in good times and bad, so that you can know fewer, more important things and you can stick with it uh, in these and all uncertain times. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check us out at tandemgrowth.com. I hope you found this useful. If you'd like to check out past podcasts, we're available on iTunes. You can also check out past episodes also at tandemgrowth.com. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it uh, and uh, God bless.
Thank you for listening to The Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com. Or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.